You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience here at Conservative Review, where we know what it is like to be a conservative. We know what it means to be a conservative. It's February 21st. It's Thursday, almost the end of the week. And, you know, even in a quieter week with Congress out and uh, pretty much everything's quiet, I guess President's Week President's Day is now President's Week vacation. Things are pretty quiet, but even then, there's still a ton to talk about. We've had a lot of guests on, so there's a backlog of a lot of our regular programming that I haven't been able to get out fully in writing for those of you who follow our columns every day. And there's just so much to say that deal with a lot of foundational issues. So whether it's the courts, whether it's what's going on with the border fight, immigration, whether it's what's going on with policy and personnel inside the White House, um, whether it's stuff on national security and terrorism and citizenship and stolen sovereignty with the jihadi bride tying into birthright citizenship. I want to get to all of this today, all under the theme of the following. Liberals know what they want. They know what it means to be a liberal. They know what it means to be a progressive. And everything they do, policy-wise, strategically, and espouse in terms of messaging, is oriented towards that goal. We seem to have an identity crisis here. Nobody knows what it means to be a conservative anymore. We're so obsessed with merely reporting on the left and owning the left and responding to the left and obsessing about the media that we become the left. We are the left. Let me start off with this point. And you, you know where I'm coming from here. Trump administration this week launches global campaign to end the criminalization of homosexuality in dozens of nations where it's still illegal to be gay. U.S. officials tell NBC News a bid aimed in part at denouncing Iran over its human rights record. You know, it's funny. A reporter asked Trump about this, and he didn't even know about it. That in itself is a story tying into personnel and policies of an administration that the phony conservative movement keeps defending and refuses to attack when the president himself often is unaware of it. It's bad staff around him. So now rather than just backing Trump which in itself, you never want to be a water carrier for anyone. A conservative means to follow a set of principles. We're actually supporting the very swamp we wanted to defeat. So first of all, isn't it interesting how the president declared an emergency on Friday? Now, you know, I support him in the notion that there is an emergency, and I've explained very specifically why in certain areas of the border, for certain qualitative and quantitative reasons, of illegal immigration and cartel activity, it is an urgent problem and it needs to be treated as such in about five different ways. But unfortunately, the president is only treating it as such to reprogram a couple billion in border wall funding to fulfill a campaign promise to get himself out of his emergency 
with being in hot water with his base. So you would have expected to, for him to come back Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday this week to be all fire and actually treat treat it as an emergency. I mean, if you have an emergency in your family, like you kind of know about it and everything you do in your activities for that week is oriented towards that emergency. Is it just me? But I'm not seeing much of an emergency. I'm not seeing Trump follow the lead of Chip Roy and declare the cartels terrorist organizations and start mounting troops there. I mean, either it's an emergency or it's not. I believe it is, but I mean, unfortunately, his actions are playing into the Democrats' political criticism as well as what's inevitably going to be these ridiculous legal challenges. So... That's a problem, but but what is the hellfire emergency? We're not launching a global campaign against the cartels. We're launching a global campaign to end the criminalization of homosexuality. Now, look, no one here is trying to criminalize them, but since when did we as conservatives become obsessive about spreading homosexuality around the world? I mean, just leave it alone. This is part of a broader problem we're seeing with the Fox News culture of what it means to be a conservative, this cool dude conservatism of basically joining the left in their intersectionality Olympics. You know, intersectionality is basically what they call the intersectionality awareness, your obsessiveness about your identity. Now, conservatives say they oppose it, but in obsessing about the liberal media, they've actually internalized it. So you're basically seeing from a lot of people now this this uh, trend among conservative media figures like, well, you see, Trump is more gay than you guys are. He's pro-gay. This gay black conservative is like, what? I mean, since when were we into that stuff? We're into the rule of law, the right principles, and we don't focus on identity. And certainly we don't go out of our way to promote things that I thought we all believed were a sin. You know, now I think, you know, obviously we've seeded the field for 15 years, so I'm not going to sit and promote sodomy laws. I have no need to do that. But, you know, obviously we got to protect religious liberty. We got to end this absurdity in the culture with the transgenderism. But are we going to go out of our way to be pro homosexual activity? I mean, is that what it means to be conservative? Because maybe I haven't gotten the memo. And I'm not a 70, 80 year old conservative. I mean, this has changed pretty quickly. So th- this is what it means to champion that. Like we take the left's obsession with race and sexual this and that. And, oh, are you for the poor? You're for this. You're for this identity group. And we want to say, see, see, we're, we're better for them than you are. See, that's what it means to be a conservative these days. You know, next week, you're going to have the CPAC convention, which is very much embodied by this teeny bopper culture where we're looking for a talking point, not for an agenda. So we want a talking point. We saw this a lot with jailbreak, where all of a sudden everyone forgot our 100-year-long principles on law and order, what it means to be a conservative, and suddenly we're to the left of Dukakis, every one of us, every one of these conservative groups, and they wanted this talking point. See, see, we're, we're, we're better for the blacks than you are because we're letting go more criminals and really, of course, not only is it the wrong thing to do, the people get hurt by it most, of course, are blacks living in areas because most of the criminals doing the violent crime 
are blacks, but most of the victims of it are also black. And most blacks are still law-abiding, so therefore you're actually hurting them. So if you want to get involved in that, you know, but but it, what's so funny is you're watching these, um, you know, Fox stars. You know, Charlie Kirk was putting this out on Twitter. I'm forgetting what it was. It was um, some... I'm trying to remember what his big obsession was. A gay black veteran calls out Jose Smollett, you know. Like, is that what we're for? Like, all of a sudden we're just, yeah, I'm a gay conservative. Like, okay, I mean, I mean, it's just there, there's this obsession. They so badly want to engage in the intersectionality Olympics. I want to join the slalom. I want to join the skiing. Yes, let me in, let me in. Yes, see, we have more gays than you do. Huh, take that. But this is what we're busy with. Not charting a course on healthcare, charting a course on what a foreign policy, America first foreign policy means and what it doesn't mean. What sovereignty means. A, pa- a-, a path towards having the proper balance of state and federal control over various issues. The debt. No, it's all this like, yeah, you know, we have more case than you do. Please, please accept me. I feel guilty. I feel guilty. And I love it because they'll never let you in. You know where you see this that's so fascinating? So part of this culture is getting involved in fiscal issues too. So now they don't know how to explain to people or even understand an agenda of how conservative fiscal policy is good for everyone and the harms of not of pursuing, you know, uh, anti-market policies that now there's this whole fed. Well, we're for, uh, paid family leave. You know, Mike Lee is working with Javanka and we're going to get to that in a minute, uh, with this Javanka thing again, ties into staff policies. We don't have any vision here. Yeah. I'm for the poor. I'm for, I'm for, I'm for handouts, but, but a more conservative version of it. So part of that, if you remember with the tax cuts, they so badly wanted to continue making the code more and more progressive. Now, there were elements of the tax cuts that were good. I mean, we, we on net, we supported it in the end. I don't think it was the hellfire emergency issue that we, you know, the one issue we needed to expend our capital on, but fine. We, we have a lot of content and, and uh, podcasts from last year on this. Those of you who have been with us for, for longer remember it. But anyway, towards the end, it got really mucked up when Rubio and Lee stuck in this um, doubling of the child tax credit, 60% increase of the refundable portion. And it's straight up progressive stuff. Straight up progressive. And it's like so bad. Like, see, we're for the poor. We're for, we're for, like, you know, you're trying to get points. And I laugh at them because now the left is coming out with all their material of how you stupid fools, you raise taxes on everyone. You're not getting our refunds. You know, obviously everyone understands you guys are smart enough to understand the refunds are less because the withholdings were less. I mean, that's where the tax cut was and it's extremely dishonest what the left is doing. But the point is like they thought they would win by mucking up the tax cuts with a bunch of progressive pork and handouts 
and it's like still not good. Where's my refund? You know. And meanwhile, they doubled the child tax credit. It's like it's not good enough. They, you'll never get credit for joining the intersectionality Olympics. You're just not. So you may as well actually have an agenda, pursue it, and explain it properly. But no, we're always responding. So I just had to get that out, get that out of my system. So the emergency is that we have to have a global campaign against the criminalization of homosexuality, but we can't have a global campaign against the cartels and securing our border. I mean, at least I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing any other sphere of emergency, any other way this president is truly demonstrating that it is an emergency. Again, I can't defend him more than he defends himself. I'm the one sitting and providing more material. You heard yesterday's show that nobody nobody has done anything like that with probably the most emergency county having a county commissioner on speak about the effects on on his county. You know, I could tell you I am the highest ranking politico that Joel Edwards is in touch with. There's something wrong with that. You know, I tried to pass this stuff on to people I know, but I mean, the White House should be all over that, and they should invite him to the White House, talk about that. But instead, we we have to criminally you know, fight fight for our um, LGBTQTFYNZ. And by the way, what's really funny about that? What's really um, amazing? Well, I shouldn't say funny, but it's stupid too. Forget about the social values. Again, we're all for, we have more women in combat than you do, Martha McSally. Yeah, we're all for, I mean, we're all social leftists now. And we're fiscal leftists because we don't care about that and free market healthcare. We're all, we're all, we're just straight up leftists. That's what we are now. But just strategically, it's stupid. The the, the Trump administration, which again, I'm going to get to this in a minute, that Trump himself appears to have not even known about it. They're um, continuing an Obama policy. So let's say homosexuality is the highest order of men. I mean, we need to promote it left and right. Fine. Okay, fine. But a lot of the countries that they're targeting, what they're referring to, are places in Africa and the Middle East where we, we finally have gotten better governments there that are willing to work with us against terrorism. They're trying to root out terrorism. They're trying to root out the jihadists. And worse, and this is what Obama did. He started attacking them because, in his mind, they're anti-gay. And what's stupid, just strategically, is being pro-gay is not an option on the menu in these countries. It's either you have people like sissy who aren't into the homos, but will help you fight the terrorists, or you get the Muslim Brotherhood who aren't into the homos and will kill them, and will also promote terrorism. So. It's stupid to undermine people like Sissy or MBS or whatever, or you know, the Kenyan government, for example, when they're trying to fight the bad guys because you're such a ze- you're so zealous for homosexuality, when in reality, if you undermine them and have a coup there, what you're gonna get is even worse, even from your perspective anyway. Right? We we said that during the Obama years and Obviously, the Trump State Department is continuing that, so there you go. Which leads me to the next point. We've said it a number of times. Conservative media is so stupid for saying, are you with Trump? Stop criticizing Trump. What is Trump if not for the staff around him? 
Every day, there are battles in this administration, I know firsthand, where good people promote the MAGA agenda. Other people don't want the MAGA agenda. And those people are more numerous. And without outside intervention, pressure, uh, a fire building on Fox and Hannity and, and Limbaugh, those guys will win out. So when these people say, so what happens is, because those guys are more numerous, the signals coming out of the White House are more in the bad direction on many of these issues. So my objective is to criticize it and bash it because you're helping the MAGA people in the administration that we all say we support that don't have a voice and they need close air support. And frankly, that's what Trump supposedly supports. So when you say that you don't want to say anything because I don't want to undermine Trump, it's the most counterintuitive thing I've ever seen. Obviously, you've seen the news that Mark Short, former Coke, big legislative guy, who was the head of the legislative shop in the White House, he was picked as Mike Pence's chief of staff. Mike Pence is horrible on immigration. Mark Short is a big reason why Trump wound up keeping DACA. And as I mentioned before, that's the linchpin to losing all of his leverage in these negotiations. You know, this stuff is not going to happen on its own. We have a major shallow state, not deep state, shallow state problem in this administration. And again, often Trump doesn't even know about it. Here's an exclusive from Betsy Woodruff of Daily Beast, but she has good sources. I know Daily Beast is liberal. Trump administration weighs shielding Venezuelan migrants from deportation. Senior officials of the State Department have previously weighed whether to push to protect Venezuelans in the U.S. from deportation, according to internal communications the Daily Beast has reviewed. Uh, this is the TPS status. People from several countries, including Somalia and Yemen, currently have the same temporary protective status, which, which also grants migrants short-term work permits. And by the way, that was done against our will, and no one stood up. I wrote an article against it, but it was just me. Let's continue. But extending the policy to Venezuelans would be an atypical step for the Trump administration, which has taken steps to end TPS for people from half a dozen other countries. Um, officials have explored the process in great detail, according to the communication, but there is not a consensus in the department. Elliot Abrams, Trump's special envoy for Venezuela, has participated in the, in the discussions, as has Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Mike Pompeo himself is not that great on immigration, but um, Elliot Abrams, oh, jeez. Oh, he's in there now. Oh, man. <laughs> Marco Rubio is pushing for this. I cannot underscore or sorry overstate the severity of this problem of extending temporary protected status to venezuelans here illegally as you remember a couple weeks ago i had our resident expert on latin american affairs joseph Meyer, who is the biggest expert i know of on this issue and you would think he would have been really into it like we need to kick out maduro and get involved there like you would think that's what he would say because he's so into that stuff. And he was very cautious. And look, you know, ideally it should have been this way, but 
we've seeded Latin America for so many decades. There's not not much we can do now. But the biggest thing we have to do is protect America, protect America from a migration. And, and you remember that show. Think about what he said. If you go and right now offer TPS status, that will be the biggest invitation to make Venezuela the next Guatemala, the next Central America, where we're going to have hundreds of thousands coming from there and then apply for TPS. I know that officially it's only those here, but again, once you show that we're going to continue it, that's how it starts. Our voices aren't being heard. There's not a single good person on immigration there. I don't know what's happened to Stephen Miller. I think he's just in survival mode. From what I hear, he's mainly doing speech writing. He has his input here and there, but he is not the predominant voice. So the voice has got to come from outside. Where is it? We're too busy trying to support liberal ideas on crime and homosexuality and whatever and having our latest hot takes. I mean, mean, again, picture two armies marching towards each other, preparing for battle. You have one that's inexorably oriented towards the fight. Every step, every breath is preparing the weaponry, the tactics. And then you have the other side that's like, hey, yeah. That's a nice apple orchard. Let's go and eat some apples. Hey, uh, let's take, take some selfies in this uh, um, cornfield. Hey, uh, this, this is really some good stuff here. Um, and like, what? Did, don't we have a mission, a battle here? No, well, I guess we don't. And that's the problem. We don't know what it means to be a conservative anymore. Look, I'll tell you this much. Agree with me or don't agree with me. We don't have an identity crisis here on this show at Conservative Review as long as I'm here. We don't have an identity crisis. We know exactly what we are. We know the broad principles. We know our history. We know our constitution. And then we know the facts on the ground as it relates to a multitude of issues going on in the modern era and then how to apply those first principles. And... um. That's where we are. So just to cap this discussion off before we move on to the courts, there's another article we're going to link to in show notes. It's a must-read from Aklachi News. I know some of you that are more, um, you know, just constantly online and watching this stuff, even before I talk about it, you've seen it, how Kushner is trying to remake the landscape on legal immigration. So now that he's done screwing us on illegal immigration, he is considering withdrawing the administration's support for Tom Cotton's Raise Act, limiting immigration and downright expanding immigration across the board. And remember, you heard Trump talk about this, having more immigration. It's unbelievable. It's a very scary article. A very scary article um, we'll link to so you guys get a copy of it. Um, to this day, I'm the only one who wrote the article on Jared Kushner having to go. He needs to go. Imagine if you had a letter from 50 prominent conservative leaders and then they do media with it showing, uh, just calling on his resignation. They won't do it. Because we don't have a conservative media, we don't have a conservative policy, we don't have conservative think tanks, we're left with a handful of people scattered out that do good work. 
I'm not the only one. And 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 certainly it's been a privilege to meet some of them and work with them. You know, it, it's just a real shame. It's a real shame. They're bringing in all the special interests, but no conservative groups. Oh, they say they're bringing conservative groups, but they mean the Koch groups. I mean, it's Orwellian. What am I supposed to do? This president says he hates the Kochs, and then, I mean, I haven't seen an administration with more Kochs in it. This is a very, very big problem. A very big problem. So that is with Cushy Kushner. I mean, you you could read it for yourself. I'm not gonna take the time. You know, we we have limited time here, but make sure to read that article. And don't tell me, oh, it's fake liberal media. I love it. So that that's the new shtick now from conservatives. Like, there's one thing if liberal media attacks conservative ideas. So you say, like, well, let's respond to them. But if they show that the administration is doing liberal things, like we should be aware of that. <laughs> Anyway, next thing, a lot has been going on in the courts, and I really need to do a separate show on this, but um, I don't mean to be a jerk and say, see, I told you so, but I'm the first person to call that shot, like Babe Ruth called a shot, that John Roberts would be the next Kennedy, so we wouldn't even have, we wouldn't have five votes, and then really we wouldn't necessarily have four votes because Kavanaugh was the golden boy. There's a reason why Anthony Kennedy basically retired. There were a lot of reports on that. Whether there was a specific definitive deal made or not is unclear. I can't tell you I know that to be true. But what I think there is enough evidence that that um, Kennedy clearly said in a conversation that that Kavanaugh would be a great replacement. Again, I can't say there was a deal. I can't say he knew he would be picked, but he clearly did say that his former law clerk was an acceptable replacement. And let me tell you, I said at the time, believe me, if, you, if you're getting another Clarence Thomas, a- Anthony Kennedy wouldn't have said that. We're seeing that every day. We're seeing now from Roberts and what's his name? from Roberts and Kavanaugh, that not only are they not aggressively overturning the lower courts, whether it's taking up a case on the merits, whether it's taking off their injunctions, they're downright doing the opposite now. They're downright issuing liberal rulings. They're downright going after lower courts that ruled properly. We saw this in several examples. So we saw the passive act with things like the insane global warming lawsuit from from a bunch of kids to sue the government for action, unprecedented type of lawsuit. And, you know, Roberts and Kavanaugh would not join the other three in putting an end to it. But we saw actively with allowing these lower court opinions to stand with the notion that there's an unalienable right to funding, to Medicaid funding for 
abortion groups. We saw it earlier this month with, um, you know, the abortion case. Louisiana's common sense abortion requiring abortion physicians to have admission rights in a hospital within 30 miles. And what we saw was that in the view of Roberts, so it wasn't Kavanaugh there, but remember I warned, Kavanaugh had a nuanced opinion he gave on that. He officially joined the other three conservatives, but he had a nuanced opinion. Basically, both of them felt that bad Supreme Court precedent not only shouldn't be overturned, but if a lower court brushes up against that precedent, we have to aggressively police it. Now, now Kavanaugh in that case happened to say that this was different than the Hellerstadt case where the ridiculous court ruled um, that you know, it, it, it uh, impedes the right to an abortion if you require such regulations of the doctors, su- such qualifications. He said there were clearly differences between the cases, so it didn't rub up against that precedent. But clearly, you know, if it would, if it would have, um, clearly, we know how he would have ruled. And, and now we have the proof with that. So there was another case earlier this week. We were busy with with our border reporting, so I didn't get a chance to write about it, but the case was Moore v. Texas. Okay? So in this case, the Supreme Court summarily reversed the Texas, Texas Court of Criminal Appeals determination that this individual, this this uh, individual case, this guy Moore, did not have intellectual disability, and and consequently was eligible for the death penalty. In other words, a lot of these cases going on now, the Supreme Court never officially abolished the death penalty, but they've done it backhandedly. I've been watching this for five years with John Roberts joining with the others to block, um capital punishment for various reasons. And the shtick now is basically they just say everyone's disabled or not mentally competent or that the jury pool was racist or rigged or some other one of these type of loopholes that they just end the death penalty. And I've seen it for years. It's hard to quantify it, but I you know just have been watching this. And Roberts has been joining with the left on that. But this wasn't just like stay of an extra. It was summarily reversing a Texas Court of Criminal Appeals uh, uh, decision. And um, that's pretty unprecedented. Unprecedented. Because that's not just like let's wait and see. That means you clearly believed that the lower court has erred in their in their opinion. And um, that is a very big problem. Roberts and Kavanaugh joined with that. So now we're losing ground even on things that were a no-brainer with any Republican appointee, like the death penalty. The death penalty. And again, this is what's so important. 
the dream of this phony conservative legal movement was like, oh, let's get our guys in the court. We're going to, all this bad stuff, we're going to reverse it. And the, and the irony is, these are recent court opinions that are so recent that Roberts himself ruled against the liberals on it. Yet once it's kind of codified, so to speak, not only won't he reverse it, but he'll zealously enforce it on the lower courts where he will not zealously enforce longstanding proper precedent on immigration on liberal lower courts. But he'll go after the Fifth Circuit, or in this case, Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, when he believes they're brushing up against precedent. Because it's complicated. I'm not going to get into details. It has to do with the remand order from the Supreme Court um, two years ago. And Roberts himself dissented from that. There were no, there was no problem with the lower court. But instead, Roberts concurred with the you know liberals. And um, reversed this uh, capital punishment. So he is now treating the most recent garbage opinions for which we were supposed to, I mean, stuff that it was like a no-brainer. You just get one more vote and this stuff is over with. He's treating that as ironclad. And that's the thing. I warned you guys, this gets back to the beginning of our show today. We so don't have our own agenda. We're so into the symbolism. Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh. Huh, the, the, the left is attacking Kavanaugh. And I, I don't just mean with the crazy sexual allegations. I mean, even before that occurred, the, the left started attacking him because, again, any Republican appointee, they're going to go nuts over. And our entire modus operandi is to analyze something from the prism of the wacko left. Well, if they're attacking him, he must be good. Well, what? Have you ever bothered to check? If Kavanaugh, and I literally called this shot. He's being, Kavanaugh's being weak in the very way I said. That he's going to overly respect the president. He might not like it, but he's not going to want to look like he's moving out in too much of a direction. He's not going to categorically cut out the cancer. We saw this when he was on the D.C. Court of Appeals where, you know, he would rule the right way, but not categorically, or he would give standing when he shouldn't have given standing for people to sue against religious symbols. He ultimately said it's not a problem with the Establishment Clause, but he gave them standing when they shouldn't have had standing. And I'll never forget Candace Owens, from the, the partner of uh, Charlie Kirk, the quintessential Fox News sensational, cool dude, identity-driven you know, and, and she was attacking all of us on jailbreak because we're ruining this agenda to get more black conservatives by uh, being Michael Dukakis. So she, I, I'll never forget. She tweeted, wait till Kavanaugh gets on the bench. Now he's really going to retaliate against the left right after what they did. To him. And we're like, you idiot. Understand policy. Understand the courts. Understand who these people are. Stop promoting your own sensationalist political talking points that are grounded in, in, in stupidity. If you understand where these people come from, when they're attacked, when their integrity of being impartial, at least from the vantage point of the political elites, is attacked, they're going to double down to show, no, I'm still one of you. Please don't attack me. I'm impartial. I'm not going to move the court to the right. And that's what we're left with. So here we expended so much political capital 
praising McConnell, praising Lindsey Graham, and losing the opportunity to primary challenge them. They're going to get away scot-free, screw us on every other issue, because they were so strong with Kavanaugh. We die on hills that are the other side's hills for people that will then go and screw us. And it's not just them. It's Gorsuch is horrible on immigration. Alito's okay in general, but not as no, he's not a Thomas. You know, you know, j- just one other interesting thing on the courts. I don't want to spend too much time on this because I want to get onto the jihadi bride and birthright citizenship. But uh, you had this ruling in um, gosh, what's the case? Tim's v. Indiana, this Indiana case, where the court had a landmark ruling on, was it yesterday? I'm forgetting now, Tuesday, Wednesday, that the Eighth Amendment's ban on excessive fines, so right, it bans cruel and unusual punishment, and then also excessive fines, that it applies to the states. You know, basically, this was an Indiana heroin convict who had a luxury SUV, and it was seized with uh, a forfeiture, asset forfeiture, after he pleaded guilty, and um, you know it was only like three hundred dollars worth of heroin. This was a forty-two thousand dollars car, and you know they were saying that um, to forfeit that is an excessive fine. Okay, violates the Eighth Amendment. Now, again, I don't want to get too deep into this. This is a discussion for another show, but um, you know, basically, we have a Constitution and we have a Bill of Rights. You know. That applies to the federal constitution. What about the states? What about state governments? Could states violate the Bill of Rights? Um, so, you know, th- th- there's a discussion in and of itself. It gets pretty complicated. You know, there's an angle of natural law that there are certain natural rights that we adopted that the assumption is states cannot um, states cannot infringe upon that. And you know, I don't know if everyone agrees with me, but I actually am a believer in that line of thought. Now, that would not be a way of incorporating, so to speak. It's called the incorporation doctrine to say that at some point we incorporated the Bill of Rights into the Constitution binding over the states. Now, I would not say that all, and certainly not the excessive fine thing, not all things like, like that wouldn't be a natural right. But things like, again, freedom of religion. Um, and we're going to get to that in a minute. The, the the real unalienable of unalienable foundational foundational rights, the right to self-defend, the right to locomotion, as Clarence Thomas said. That, look, I'm not asking for anything. Just don't come and force force me to violate my conscience, my property, without anything, without any due process. Um, and then the right to self-defense, not just the Second Amendment, because that predated. Remember, I'm a strong believer in Madison. He he believed we didn't need a Bill of Rights. Now, some of that you could say is because states had their own, um, but these were natural rights. But nonetheless, you wouldn't apply that to something like this clause of the Eighth Amendment. Um, I don't. I mean, I, I don't. I don't think you would. But. Um, Timothy Farrar, he is, uh, he wrote a treatise, you know, one of the just common, you know, you have commentators on the Constitution, Joseph Story, uh, Chancellor Kent, Rawl. So he wrote the first 
commentaries to come out right literally months after the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1867. And he said, quote, the states are recognized as governments and when their own constitutions permit, may do as they please, provided that they do not interfere with the constitutional laws of the United States or with the civil or natural rights of the people recognized thereby and held in conformity to them. The right of every person to life, liberty, and property, to keep and bear arms, to the writ of habeas corpus, to trial by jury, um... You know, he, he just said these are recognized by and held under the Constitution of the United States and cannot be infringed by individuals or or even by the government itself. So whether he was saying that from a natural right perspective or he was saying the 14th Amendment did that. But I'm a very strong believer, as you well know, that the that states cannot violate core, core, core rights. But that but core natural rights are a little bit different from saying every clause in, in um, the, the Bill of Rights. Not every clause is a natural right. Excessive fines is not, I, I wouldn't say that rise that, that occasion. So the question is, okay, so what in our constitution ever incorporated against the states? So, you know, they wrote an opinion here. It was Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying that this clause of the Eighth Amendment is incorporated, which was pretty much a presumed as such against the states. Now, as always, she chose the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Clarence Thomas issued a concurrence in judgment, meaning he agreed to the outcome, for, but for a different reason. He is saying, as I think Timothy Farrar is saying, it's the privileges and immunities clause, that no state can infringe upon these privileges and immunities, again, not to create BS rights, as the left wants to do, but the unalienable rights that already exist that are spelled out in the Bill of Rights, not all of them. To be clear, Thomas is clear, and he's right on this. For example, the Establishment Clause. That's not an individual right. It's just that no state shall establish a religion. That, I believe, is not to this day under any clause incorporated against the states. Indeed, nine of the 13 colonies had official religions. I believe a state could have official religion. Now, be very careful here. It doesn't mean they could say you must practice, you must, right? Because that's the other clause. You can't violate someone's. But if they want to just officially declare a certain, you know, okay, we're Presbyterians, um, and they don't do anything to harm you, got you know, the other citizens, they could do that. No, I'm not suggesting that. No one would suggest that or wants that politically. I'm just saying academically, there's nothing in the Constitution preventing that. Not everything is incorporated. Nothing is incorporated in that due process clause as Clarence Thomas says due process is a process it's an end it's a means to an end it's not an end in itself it's not a new right so the problem is like you know Ruth Bader Ginsburg I think we all agree that probably this is an excessive fine and it probably is applied to the states but it's under the privileges and immunities not this BS oh anything we like to put under the due process I'm just telling you you know Everyone else signed on to this. Gorsuch wrote kind of a better separate writing, but he concurred even in judgment, even in the – it was a straight-up concurrence. Only Thomas completely rejected what they were saying and concurred only in judgment. I know that's a little bit in the weeds, but again, he is the only true originalist. We have one originalist, not five, not four. So, so much for that. We don't know what it's like to be conservative. And speaking of another issue where we don't know what it's like to be a conservative, 
the jihadi bride. This woman, Hoda Musatha, whatever, Musatha, this um, daughter of a Yemeni diplomat who should have never been in this country, living in Alabama. And that's the thing. It's not just in big cities. We have jihadists in all 50 states, places like Alabama now. Um, and, you know, a bunch of these people went over to fight for ISIS. In this case, marry, she married three ISIS fighters. <laughs> um, and then, you know, she burned her passport. She um, called for spilling the blood of veterans on Memorial Day. She went over to Syria to fight while our military is engaged in armed conflict with that very group. And then the caliphate collapsed and she was on the losing side of her treason and now she wants back. Now, obviously, there's there's tons of things to say on this. You know, obviously, you see in the media, they're showing their cards that they are so much, they're downright for terrorists. It's not even just Islamic supremacists. They're straight up horrible. Okay. There's that. But there's... There's a couple, there's a whole bunch of things to talk about, and we're going to have to continue some of this discussion in the next show because we're going to run out of time here. But there's what to say if she would have been a legitimate citizen. A lot of people are like, you know, everyone's into their individual rights now. Everyone's libertarian. And don't get me wrong. Like, you heard what I said about states. If they are into real rights, then... Believe me, I'm the, I'm the first one to be as strong as anyone on them. But you have to understand in the balance of a nation state, national security, the rights of a state and the, and, and the country and treason, there are avenues where we could denaturalize people or expatriate someone. Strip them of their passport. Obviously, if they're a legitimate citizen, then you do indeed need due process, unlike with aliens that you just kick them out. Um, of course, I agree to that. But there are, you know, like everyone just bristles at that thought. I mean, this this is as old as our as our founding. So there's a lot to say about those parameters that I'm not going to get into today. The presumption initially was she was a citizen, and everyone was like, well, they're not letting her in. It's not true. The State Department, um, there is a regular, I'm forgetting the statute. I don't have it in front of me. But I have the regulation that was written pursuant to the statute um, where clearly the State Department can can do that under the right circumstances. So if they believe that your activity overseas poses a serious threat to our country, they could strip you of their passport. 22 CFR, um, Statute 5160C4 that um, you know, the secretary could revoke a passport if he determines the applicant's activities abroad are causing or are likely to cause serious damage to national security or the foreign policy of the United States. So that is already there. Um, you know, this is part, it gets back to the Passport Act of 1926, where we have... We have expatriated people that have expatriated themselves. If you go and commit treason and fight for foreigners, you you are considered to have expi- expatriated yourself. And we just treat you – it's not a punishment. It's, it's not like, oh, you did this, so we're going to strip your citizenship. It's, it's a little bit more technical than that. 
it's that it's a natural consequence of, you know, okay, you expatriated. Are you an American or not? And and by the way, you know, this is not politically correct, but for much of our history, we had laws, you know, 1907 um uh p- Passport Act or Expatriate Act of 1907 expanded from the Expatriate Act of 1868, where we clearly, if you were just married and, you know, became a a dual citizen, we did not tolerate dual citizenship. Oh, so you became a a citizen of another nation, uh, nation, uh, you know, oh, so that means you're not a citizen of America anymore. You could only have one allegiance. So, you know, this notion that you're a citizen for life, and by the way, that sheds a lot of light on this birthright citizenship debate, the notion that any molecule or organism that lands on our soil with or without our permission uh, gets to unilaterally extract citizenship from us because, all oh, the citizenship clause did that. I'll tell you even better. If you're bred and born in America since the Mayflower came over and you go overseas and fight, we could strip that, you know, we could take away your citizenship. What happened to the 14th Amendment? Doesn't it say, uh, how, how, do you, how do you do that? You can't just uh, subject the jurisdiction. This guy wants to be in America. He wants to remain subject to our laws. Do you know that that law, 1868, it was passed a year after the 14th Amendment? And it was by Jacob Howard and all that same crew that passed the 14th Amendment, that crafted it. And by the way, there's a lot of light shed from that Expatriate Act of 1868 debate that categorically disproves Wong Kim Ark and birthright citizenship even for legal immigrants, much less illegal immigrants. They bashed the feudal system. They bashed this notion of perpetual allegiance that, you know, because that was the whole thing. Because, you know, according to the English common law, it works two ways. Just like we grab you as soon as you're here, you're a citizen. So too, you're you can't run away either. Both going in and bo- going out, you're a citizen for life. So that's when they 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 just bash the heck out of this. I mean, really, it's 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 a pretty fascinating um a series of events that took place leading up to that. But um, anyway, just wanted to let you guys know that. So I'm going to try to get into the specifics if this case blows up or other similar cases, what to do, because some cases they do have citizenship. This case doesn't, like we're going to say in a minute. But you know, th- this, this happened. It was in 1874, Nellie Grant, that was uh, President Grant's daughter, she married this Englishman. And it was it was very high profile because it was a White House ceremony on the White House lawn, and then following the wedding, the 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 couple left the country, and British law automatically grabbed her up as an English subject as a citizen. So that that was the backdrop to a lot of this in this uh, Expatriate Act of eighteen sixty eight. Congress determined that by establishing residency outside our country. You relinquished your American citizenship. This wasn't even belligerence, like taking on barbers. You just, you just moved. That was a year after the 14th Amendment. So don't tell me Congress can't do this. If you freaking go and fight for our enemies. Because they view just moving to a different country as giving up your allegiance. 
And you can't tell me that was pre-14th Amendment because it was a year after the 14th Amendment crafted by the very dudes. I mean, you look at the debate, it's the same roster of people. Um, Trumbull and, and Howard and whatever the guy from Pennsylvania, I forget his name. Uh, they were all involved in that. But again, facts don't matter. Then there's also the lesson to be proven about just the values. Notice this gal said that, oh, um, you know, my religion, I, I had to join this caliphate. There's a caliphate. You know, um, there, there's a, there's a, I, I got to join it. I didn't know. I, I thought I had to join. And I thought that was very telling because, look, I don't know how many of these people, 100, 200 there are, but there are thousands of people we've brought in, tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, among the 2 million plus Muslim immigrants we've brought in just since 9-11, who subscribe to that view. That's what Sharia means. See, secular leftists can't relate to religious obedience. But religious Christians, religious Jews could relate to that. We all have certain things that we take very seriously. Now, in our view, none of that puts us at odds with, with American values. But when it comes to Islam, you have that problem. For example, you know, there's a lot of religious Zionists among Jews that believe when you have a certain, you know, commonwealth in Israel reconstituted, they have an obligation to go there and be a part of it. Right? A very similar concept, except, you know, they're not killing anyone doing terrorism. Israel's an ally. But that, right, that, that's a religious obligation. So these people believe when you have a caliphate, you got to join it. I mean, that's a problem. Now, a lot of them were probably just too lazy and scared to do it, but they subscribe to that. So that's another conservative value that we've missed. You know, at best, conservatives will talk about vetting. Why can't anyone sit and talk about it? we're destroying our civilization? You could bring in a few here and there, but if you bring in 150, 170,000 a year, that's not even including the visa system. Don't you have a problem with this? But no, the conservatives don't want to talk about that. So um, there's that. We're almost out of time, but here's the point I am talking about today in my article. And that is birthright citizenship specifically with children of diplomats because she is not a citizen. So here's what happened. So anyway, it appears that this Huda gal <clears throat> clearly is not a citizen. The State Department, Secretary of State Pompeo is being very adamant that she is not being let into the country under no circumstances. She is an alien. She is not a citizen. And she fought for terrorists. She is a terrorist. Get out of here. And that's good. I'm glad at least he's holding the line on that much. Um, what are the details? So it appears that they're saying she's not a citizen, even though she was born here. Um, but her father was not a green card holder. Her father was a Yemeni diplomat to Yemen's mission in the UN. And as such, she's a child of a diplomat, so she's not a citizen. And there's no, there's nothing about her history. They're very clear that that ever became a citizen afterwards. So therefore, you know, even that whole 
denaturalization debate or that whole expatriate debate doesn't even start and everyone should agree this is very simple. Now, the lawyer is asserting, the lawyer, by the way, is a care, is the head of the care Florida chapter. So now we know it's clear and everyone's saying, oh, these guys are, no, they're just like Muslim, but they're not terrorists. No, no, no. They are, you know, this is really the thing. If you are a Muslim American and you really are patriotic and you really want to be like everyone else, you're like, no, you should be appalled by people like this. I mean, you should, you should tar and feather them more than anyone. And here, care is defending someone like this, which is just unbelievable. Um, so anyway, they're saying, no, 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 it was, she was born after he no longer was a diplomat. But now, now, unless you're asserting that somehow he got a green card, which clearly, I mean, the government seems to be saying not, they otherwise they wouldn't be saying what they're saying. It's irrelevant because what I think they come on, if you're here to the UN, Normal diplomats, let's say you're a diplomat to an embassy in America, like just bilateral relationships between us and them, you would get an A2 visa, A1 or A2 visa. So this, to come to the UN, I believe is a G2 visa. So either he's an he became an illegal alien and he overstayed his visa, or again, he was just, he stopped being a diplomat, but he was here pursuant to a diplomat visa. It doesn't change the fact that she is not, she's clearly not a citizen. But I have an article out today discussing something that nobody else is talking about, and it's from my book. It's another example of stolen sovereignty. It's egregious in its own right, and it also sheds light on the broader birthright debate for illegals, which shouldn't even be a debate, and how absurd it is and how wrong it is, and another proof that anchor baby jurisprudence is wrong. So basically, even the people that for their convoluted reasons, believe that somehow, somehow, if you just come here illegally, you are, you could unilaterally assert jurisdiction and your kid is a citizen and there's not a damn thing we can do about it. So, I will tell you Everyone agrees. There's literally not a person because this is literally English common law. Their whole thing is we're adopting English common law at a time we're moving away from it. Well, English common law is uh, <coughs> children of ambas of uh, diplomats are excluded, right? There's no debate about that. Wong Kim Marx says that explicitly. So we all agree. I got news for you. <clears throat> Center for Immigration Studies in 2011, did an analysis. It was actually done by John Fear. He is now at DHS, I believe. Um, he's in the government. That our government is completely lax and doesn't enforce the law even against children of diplomats. Meaning the hospitals have been given no guidance that essentially de facto anyone born here, they just hand out the birth certificate. So they get a U.S. Social Security number and done, they're deemed citizens. So pursuant to that, they could wind up voting, they get a U.S. passport, and done, their whole life, they're presumed as citizens. Now, I would imagine some will clearly decline it and clearly not take it. I don't know what percentage. But that's the honor system. Meaning clearly what we're doing is we are not enforcing anything. We're not 
putting any gate around the crown jewel of America, of America's sovereignty, and that's U.S. citizenship. What is so jarring about this is that you have diplomats have diplomatic immunity, including their family members. But on the other hand, they're not citizens. We can kick them out. The worst thing is to now be super citizens where they get the benefits of citizenship, but diplomatic immunity. It's insane. It's got to stop. But HHS and the Social Security Administration has never worked together to give guidance to the hospitals or at least afterwards to crack down on it and and compare no, uh, names You know, when you're applying for a Social Security number, run it through a system against the um, – there's a diplomatic list. That's what they need to be doing. And that's what this case sheds light on. Forget about the terrorism and the Islamic supremacism culture and expatriating people. Those are all important things to get involved in. And, and again, areas where I think we're lacking conservative vision on. But just this one point, how did she get a passport? Right, The government is right. She's not a citizen. But clearly her whole life, she's been acting as one. She might have even voted. Well, maybe she left before she turned 80, 18. I forget what it was. But, I mean, she's been treated as an American citizen. She might have gotten welfare. I don't know. Who knows? All that needs to be checked into. But she had an American passport that she burned. So, you know, there's some dispute of the facts here, but the government is clearly saying she is not a citizen because she was a child of a diplomat. How did she get a passport? Well, I'll tell you how, because we don't guard it. Why is this important? A, it's important in its own right, like I said, but B, this sheds light on the birthright debate. 98% of phony conservative media figures, it's like me and Mark Levin are the last ones left standing, Professor Eastman, a couple others at Claremont. Everyone else says, now nah, it's conservative. It's in the Constitution that any organism that comes here illegally, yeah, it's in the Constitution. And, and look, we've done, re- we have, I have a book, I have two long articles, I have two, three podcasts on it. Um, I have a lot more to say on it. But they believe that you know we made a deliberate decision at some point. There was like this ubiquitously known fact that all oh, 14th Amendment, uh, one Kim Ark, it has to apply to illegals, even though explicitly Justice Gray and one Kim Ark said only if you have permission to reside here as a as a legally domiciled immigrant. Um, you know somehow all oh, and, and therefore we've been doing it that way. Our sovereignty has been stolen. There has never been a legitimate process with input from Americans through statute or through a legitimate executive process that has ever done this. Our theory, and I believe it's the theory of Professor John Eastman, is that this happened by accident. Basically, look, anyone born to a citizen is an American citizen. Anyone born here to an LPR as a matter of practice, or you could say because of Juan Kim Ark, we've made them citizens. Um, I would argue it's not – I would argue Congress theoretically could regulate the parameters of that, even what degree of uh, how far along of a legal resident you have to be, um, how close to naturalizing. But you know, as a matter of policy, I'm fine with that the way it is. But because it – Automatically, as most people, it was laziness. We didn't have too many other people. Um, you had certain guest workers, but as John Eastman points out, there's no evidence they were given citizenship for their kids in the 1920s. And then when we had um, other programs in the 50s, 
he says as late it wasn't until the late 60s that even the passport office changed. The passport office, if you were seeking a passport, you couldn't just show you were born here. You had to show the status of your parents. Right? And if they would see your parents are illegal or, you know, here on a temporary visa, you would not get it. You were not treated as an American. It was sometime in the late 60s that they just kind of like lazily just deemed everyone who was born here just it was bureaucratic laziness. See what I'm saying? It wasn't an pa- active decision. It was a passive lack of enforcement. So we didn't have a lot of illegal immigration. But then it started in the 70s, 80s. By the early 90s, this was becoming a serious issue. Wait a minute. Hundreds of thousands of people are getting citizenship, violating our sovereignty. So, you know, that's when you had Republicans and Democrats, including Harry Reid, that started to introduce legislation <clears throat> to deal with this. It wasn't until that point that liberals retroactively concocted this argument that no one, no sane person would have said, oh, the, the, the 14th Amendment's on the soil. Right? As if it was like some definitive active decision. Like, yeah, the 14th Amendment, no one would have said that. Oh, uh, Justice Brennan's footnote and Plyler. Like, no one would have said that. No one would have said that. But this is one of my proofs. The proofs in the pudding here. You see, see, there's one thing if we zealously guarded children of diplomats from getting it, walled it off, but then gave it to illegal. So you can say, well, maybe that was a deliberate decision based on a prevailing understanding of the 14th Amendment. But no, it, it clearly was born out of by accident before we had a lot of this. Because we're seeing children of diplomats are even getting it. And what's so creepy is It's only because of the terrorism she freaking fought for ISIS, so this came to light. But if not for that, she would have totally been going away for the rest of her life as an American, and she's not. It took this to bring to light that she's not an American. Again, it's not the fighting for terrorism that's stripping her of citizenship. It just brought to light her situation, and the government looked into it like, wait a minute, you're not a citizen. How many other how many others are like this? From what I know, it's a lot of them. And remember, this is not just like bilateral diplomats. We also are different than any other nation because we don't only have our own diplomats, but we house the UN on our soil. So like in this case, you have the horrible terrorist, horrible people from tin pot dictator countries coming to the UN on G2 visas. And we're not walling off citizenship from, from their kids. When everyone agrees they should be walled off. So that shows this whole thing's a scam. It all evolved from bureaucratic laziness. It is wrong. It is something that Trump could get rid of executively. Not only is it not in the Constitution, there's no statute that mandates it. Whatever happened to that executive action? Oops. I wonder if the wall reprogramming the funding, the emergency declaration, will go the same way of that. When, when, when the you-know-what hits the fan. Anyways, a lot more to talk about on this, on what this shows on birthright citizenship. But I just wanted to share with you a thought process. I was speaking with um, Dan Cadman. He's um, kind of the legal studies guy at Center for Immigration Studies. Good guy, understands stuff. He's a former ICE agent. Um, and I was talking to him about this. I, I quote him in my article. And and as he was talking, a bell rung off, it started to ring in my in my head about a philosophical and technical absurdity 
proof number 20 of mine that birthright citizenship for illegals is not true. Think about, think about what they're saying. Think about it. If you have a diplomat that we invite in, okay, you're a diplomat, you come in on a G2 or A1, A2 visa, and you have a kid who's then born here, right? Everyone agrees not a citizen. You're a diplomat in good standing. You have the right to be here, fine. According to the left and the phony right that has no vision, here's what comes out. Every once in a while, you see stories that there's blowups and we kick out diplomats, right? We kick them out. We Turkey or you know, Iran, kick them out. Let's say we order them out. And before we can grab them and throw them out, their wife drops a baby. According to liberals, when you had the status to be here, oh, well, the child is a diplomat. But now that you're an illegal alien, oh, it's, it's, it's solely, it's on the soil, it's seven the 14th of That's what comes out. Think, uh, think about that carefully. If, if, it, if it was lost on you, it's a very subtle point. If you're a diplomat in good standing, everyone agrees, English common law, even if you're adopting English common law, your child's not a diplomat. So what, if you become an illegal alien now, if you overstay the terms of your of, of your visa, which could might have happened here in this case with this Yemeni, or if we order you out and you defy us, so now your position is stronger and your kid is a citizen? Are you kidding me? I, I would like to know in that hypothetical what these phony Fox News pundits would say. Anyway, we've gone over time, but this is the problem. Putting everything we said together today, we have no vision on a single issue. And in fact, our vision is just trying to have a talking point that we're more liberal socially and fiscally than the left because we care more about their policies than they do. That's essentially our talking point now. That's got to change. It's my commitment to you that as long as I have a breath in my voice and nerves in my fingers to type – we're going to continue giving a vision, even if we're the only ones doing it. Thank you for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. <laughs>